The superpower and the shadow are one and the same. They are the same coin, the same album, the same you, the same trait. But always remember the shadow is the survival form of the trait, usually aspects of the superpower on overdrive. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, on health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. I recently had the most wonderful day. I woke up, read in bed with my husband. We went for a two-hour walk exploring the land around where we live. Came home and assembled a 10-foot metal rack to hold our firewood. Then I made coffee and coconut macaroons and sat down to my computer for a few hours of low-key work catching up on correspondence with friends and students and colleagues. And it was on a Friday. Not a holiday, just a regular Friday. That's when I got inspired to share this story with you. These days, it's my commitment to take one completely leisurely day each week. And in general, to practice slow living more and step out of my tendency to fall into the constant pressures of what's now sometimes called urgency culture and to pay more attention to my hungry ghosts and shadows. More on that soon. First, I have a confession to make. I haven't always been this way, and I'm still not always this way, though I am sharing my practice today with you of how I'm trying to be so more even when I'm deeply engaged in busy work days. Because while I thought I was this chilled out, earthy chick who did yoga, ate well, did art, gardened, wrote nice books, lived a great, wholesome, natural life, about eight or so years ago, I discovered I had an addiction. Not to drugs, not to alcohol, not to gambling, not to sex. Mine was different. It was perfectionism. Dogged, painful, relentless perfectionism. This is not some subtle self-congratulatory admission or a hidden brag, as in how folks brag about being so busy. No, it's the admission of an actual problem. And it's relevant for most women to hear any time, and I think especially relevant at the start of a new school year, in this season that culminates in big holidays and massive to-do lists and stress over getting it all done and being good enough, this is an invitation to another way. It wasn't until I was in my 40s, post-medical school, as a mom of four kids, the author of eight books with another in process at the time, and business owner, that should tell you something right there, that I discovered that what I'd always thought was a high level of being committed to excellence, achievement, and social contribution was also coupled with an unintentionally unconscious, well-developed tendency to high-functioning perfectionism. You can insert the word anxiety in there somewhere too. I also now know it's had a real impact on my well-being, my life, and my relationships. 
It's also a tendency that's affecting the mental and physical health of thousands, if not millions of women, far more so also than men, in part explaining why so many more of us are taking anti-anxiety, antidepressant, and sleep medications, or all three. Now, I don't mean to downplay the potentially life-threatening and devastating addictions I mentioned earlier by comparing them to perfectionism. As a medical doctor who spent three years working in addiction medicine and touched by the impact of addiction in the lives of some of those I've loved, I deeply recognize the devastating impact that substances and other addictions have on the individual who's addicted and their family and community. However, I also don't want to ignore the fact that addiction to perfectionism can also have long-term health consequences. In fact, though much less obviously, perfectionism can make us sick, and theoretically, ultimately, it can be deadly. Shadow side work is also not just about perfectionism, though I focus in on it as a main example, and also because I know a lot about it personally. It's also about the patterns we adapt that can become maladaptive and have an impact on your life too. In the course of my now many decades of working with women, but especially in the 10 years since I've become more aware of the play of our shadow side in our lives, I've identified four common coins with corresponding heads and tails, or if you will, and are old enough or in love with vinyl, records with A-sides and B-sides. The superpower and the shadow are one and the same. They are the same coin, the same album, the same you, the same trait. But always remember, the shadow is the survival form of the trait, usually aspects of the superpower on overdrive. It's profoundly your superpower too, because chances are got you here to where you are now. The goal, though, is to learn to live in the A side of the superpower and use the B side to tell you when you're triggered, falling into a survival pattern rather than the higher expression of your superpower and to see the B-side as a potential set of symptoms that can help you recognize when you're not in alignment with your best expression of self, or you are in survival overdrive syndrome, as I talk about in my book, The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution. Some of the patterns I've observed and have begun to codify, including sharing them in my mini course, Shadow Work, Currently Fear to Freedom, Perfectionism to Peace, are the achiever-creator shadow side being perfectionist, the healer caregiver, shadow side being martyr, the helper, shadow side being good girl or people pleaser, and the freedom fighter, shadow side being embattled or wounded warrior. For example, I'm a naturally curious person who loves to create, serve, and help, and I value the beauty in attention to detail, thoroughness, and excellence. The flip side, however, can be relentless perfectionism a quest to achieve the impossible because perfect is not possible, frustration, self-judgment, and even being hard on others. You may be someone who relates to that, or you may be someone who really loves to serve other people, but the flip side can be acting too much as a people pleaser or a good girl, which I talk about at length in my article and podcast, Being a Good Girl May Be Hazardous to Your Health. Or you may be a healer, a volunteer, a nurturer, or caregiver. But the flip side can be becoming the martyr, saying yes to everyone and not taking care of yourself, possibly even becoming resentful at times as a result of carrying an unfair share of a caregiving role. 
or becoming compassion fatigue, as happens to so many healthcare providers who give and give without a rest. We want to lean into our wonderful qualities that stem from our own beautiful true nature. But when they've become maladaptive, we need to notice when we're shifting into the shadow side of that tendency, because it's, it's in that shifting that we can identify what's triggering us and we can reclaim equanimity in how we feel and balance in how we show up in the world. Today, I'm going to take time with you to take a deep dive into understanding superpowers and also the superpowers and shadow of our shadow sides. Those sides of ourselves that Carl Jung first described as aspects of ourselves that we repress that may be more prevalent in our lives than we'd like to face or admit to. This is something I've been dedicated to learning about for myself and practicing for the past decade, but with a spin on the concept of shadow as the maladaptive version of our best selves, our superpowers, and it's something that I think could make a huge impact in your life too. I'm going to show you how I've learned to live and work within these and do so with radical awareness, self-compassion, and self-love. I'm going to use perfectionism, my biggest tendency and trait, to illustrate how our shadow sides can drive us and how they show up when we're triggered by old stressors, like going home for the holidays if family life is hard, or by being chronically stressed, or being presented with a challenge that overwhelms you by feeling unsafe in our environment, or even feeling chronically unwell and exhausted, which can trigger that shadow side to surface and become more dominant. First, I'd like to tell you how awareness of shadow sides all began for me 10 years ago with my patient, Marnie. Feeding Hungry Ghosts. Marnie came to me at age 62, a wise firecracker of a woman, now in the early stage of, as she described it, crash and burn. Her symptoms included fatigue, poor sleep, anxiety, and on top of it, a diagnosis of Hashimoto's. She was pressuring herself all the time to work, work, work. On top of it, she was intensely committed to keeping fit and stalling off aging to the point that she was working out six days a week with a personal trainer for two hours at a time on top of her full workload and being a mom and a grandmom. And you know what? She looked great, but she was burned out tired, wired, depleted. And unlike a lot of women with Hashimoto's who have trouble losing weight, she had a hard time keeping it on because she was also skipping a lot of meals and living on smoothies and energy bars, always on the go. As I was sitting with Marnie, I was wondering what was driving so much unrest. She was in a long-term happy marriage with a partner who also happened to be financially successful. Her own career had been very successful and satisfying professionally and personally, and also financially. All of her kids were grown up and healthy, all doctors and lawyers with kids of their own. She loved the community she lived in and had good friends. So what was the problem that was keeping this woman so internally pressured all the time? When I asked her about her upbringing, Marnie became very intense, quiet, and thoughtful, occasionally slipping into a colloquial accent she'd worked really hard to overcome in her early life. She told me that she was born very, very poor to parents who had been born in Europe and had survived a terrible atrocity that brought them to the United States to start over. Eventually, they had five children, all living in a cramped tenement apartment in a major city. From the youngest age my patient could remember, she had this internal drive that she said started with the F word, as in, 
I'm not going to be effing poor. I'm not going to live in an effing hellhole my entire life. I'm not effing going to raise my kids like this. From as early as she could remember, she started working, first earning and saving a meager allowance, then having one job and two jobs and putting herself through college at night while working during the day and on weekends. And she just kept going and going and going with this feeling that if she ever stopped, she was going to be right back where she came from, poor and struggling in the ghetto. Constant striving to be better and do more perfectionism, she told me, had been her best friend for as long as she could remember. It had gotten her out of poverty. It got her a highly successful career. It got her a great life with a happy marriage and successful kids. But perfectionism was also an ever-present, unquenchable beast, always demanding more of her. So she pushed and pushed and pushed. As she was sitting in front of me, all of a sudden, I saw exactly what was driving her so hard and what was leading to her symptoms. And these words popped out of my mouth. Marnie, I feel like you're feeding hungry ghosts that aren't even chasing you anymore. These ghosts from your past that you're tending to every day as if they're going to come and get you if you stop. I hadn't seen Gabor Mate's book in the realm of hungry ghosts at that time, nor did I know, at least consciously, about the hungry ghost concept in Buddhism and Chinese religion and mysticism. I'd only heard the term in a Tracy Chapman song, Material World, and it just rose to the surface for me. Marnie looked at me and her face just kind of went blank and her jaw dropped for a second. Then she exhaled an enormous sigh. Her shoulders dropped. She teared up and she said, you're right. I never thought of it that way, but you're exactly right. I'm running away from something I overcame long ago. My brain just hasn't realized it yet. I don't know how to stop because I'm truly afraid that if I do, the whole world's going to come tumbling down. Marnie's trauma from her childhood was continuing to cause her to feed hungry ghosts from her past, and they weren't even chasing her anymore. She was stuck in survival mode. She was so afraid of returning into the poverty that she came from that she just couldn't stop pushing. And for her, the ticket out of poverty was high achievement. I showed her the evidence in her life that she was already safe and successful, but that her primitive brain just hadn't registered the message yet. She was still living with a pattern that continued to trigger her survival mode and led to exhaustion. Perfectionism had been her best friend. It had gotten her out of poverty. It had gotten her a highly successful career, a highly successful life. It was the B side of the record to her natural A side of excellence, curiosity, drive, and commitment to service. I held her gaze for a moment as this realization washed over us both. And then, in that moment for the first time, I gave my patient a prescription that I've given a thousand or more times since. Permission to stop feeding hungry ghosts. Permission to pause. Permission to let your brain catch up and know you're safe now. As if she was talking to that hungry ghost, facing that shadow, I asked her to thank her relentless tendency to push harder do more, do better, and to let it know that it had served her well. So right there in front of me, she said, hey, perfectionism, thank you for getting me here right now. Thank you for getting me where I am in my life. All these wonderful traits that I have, but I've got it from here. She was now ready to live life on different, calmer, safer terms, and she did. Months later, she was doing great. 
She said that conversation was a real major talking to for her and a wake-up call, and she transformed her life. She cut back on her workouts and added in some more gentle forms of working out. Restorative yoga, for one. She cut back on some of her work hours because they were work hours, even though she loved her work. She was doing some of them for the wrong reason. She started taking trips with her husband to places they wanted to go, but hadn't because she was either always working on something or afraid to spend the money or doing something with her kids or grandkids. She had a new perspective on her life and it felt good. Let's take a look at why you might be feeling and feeding hungry ghosts too. It's not your fault. It's your default. We all want to be loved. We want to be cared for. We want to fit into a group. We want to make meaningful contributions. We want to help to connect. We want to be validated, seen, heard, accepted, and recognized. These aren't infantile attachment reasons for being. These are deep, profound, primally psychological human needs because they are all part of what have on an evolutionary scale and even now for much of our lives, continue to keep us safe, fed, housed, clothed, and connected to our tribe. They're all part of human security. Think Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They're all part of what allow us and enable us, quite literally, to survive and then take it from there, when those needs are met, to thrive. Think about our ancestors way back when. If you didn't fit in with your tribe, you wouldn't have gotten food. You wouldn't have been able to perform all the survival skills that you needed on your own. You can't just live out there in the jungle or the desert by yourself. This mentality is so hardwired into us that it's still alive and well. In fact, belonging is considered to be one of the reasons teenagers will stand in a queue outside a store for hours to purchase the latest new style of sneakers, or why grown-ass adults will do the same thing to have the latest iPhone. Yes, of course, there's wanton commercialism in our culture, but these are all status symbols that show that we fit into the tribe that we sense that we belong to. When we're not getting the love or recognition or safety or security or stability that we need, survival mode automatically kicks in. It can look something like this. When you're a baby and you go coo and goo and make cute faces and smile and babble and gurgle and burp and fart and do all the things that babies do that make parents laugh and giggle and smile. If you do these things and your healthy parent gives you coos and giggles and nuzzles and snuggles and smiles back, you get the brain feedback that you need that all is well in your world, that you live in a safe home where there's peace and calm. Most of the time there's food on the table and not a lot of talk in the background about money worries or social worries or parenting worries or relationship worries. You feel safe and everything's okay in your world and you're getting the feedback that you need and your nervous system and personality and behavioral traits can develop in a nurtured, adaptive way. One of the things that happens if your parent, for example, is depressed and they look back at you and you're gooing and cooing and making all of these appropriate baby gestures to get your parent to smile at you and love you, but your parent just can't because she or he is depressed and their face is flat, 
and you're not getting the appropriate signals that your brain really wants, your little tiny baby brain starts to recognize something is missing in response to that flat facial expression. When we see that in people, we know something's not right, that your world is not okay. Now, let's fast forward to maybe when you're four or six or eight years old, and that same depressed parent isn't responding appropriately. Or perhaps you have an alcoholic parent or a parent who rages or is emotionally unstable due to maybe bipolar disorder. And you learn what their facial expressions are before they're going to fly off the handle or throw things or rage or hit someone. Or perhaps you live in an unsafe neighborhood, are a victim of racism, bullying, or any of the many threats different humans experience. And you learn to adapt behaviors that keep you as safe and successful in your environment as possible. Perhaps you learn that if you make a little joke or please that person, or you take the blow that offsets either someone else getting hit or hurt, or things escalating out of control, maybe things calm down. Perhaps you become the good girl, or you fly under the radar by playing it so small that you don't get too much attention on you, or you become the perfectionist because being perfect in your family makes that person or that family happy and pleases them, makes your depressed parent finally come out of their depression, or makes your parent who is enraged at least have something to praise you about. Or maybe you're somebody who can never please that person in your family, so you're on an eternal quest to be better and better and better. You can see how we start to develop and adapt behaviors that come in a quest for safety and survival and a calm, vagal nerve. And they become so second nature, so subconscious, that we think that's just who we are and this is just how life is. In neurobiology, we have an expression, what's wired together, fires together. And that's what happens. What's wired together all of those early memories connected into our primitive survival mechanisms in our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, in our amygdala, in our hippocampus, all connected with facial expressions, sensations, scents, things that we experience in those environments or relate to them, what we might call triggers are now firing together. And that's what gets activated anytime you're exposed to something that reminds you consciously, subconsciously, or unconsciously of that environment. The whole set of what were once adaptive, but are now maladaptive behaviors when they continue beyond when we need them anymore, get set in motion. And they're activated or reactivated, even when dormant, by triggers that remind us, no matter how subtly or subconsciously, of that time of unmet basic need or safety or belonging or all of the above. We all have default modes, patterns we develop early on that keep us safe, loved, fed, part of the tribe, alive, and that either drive us or that we fall into during times of stress and distress. Sometimes you might even be stuck in these patterns because you've been doing them for so long, you don't even remember any other way. Again, it's just who you are and how it is. Without you even realizing it, they may be causing you a lot of stress, burden, sadness, grief, overwhelm, burnout, relationship disruptions, causing you to make choices in your life that aren't the best for you because you're trying to be safe and fit in and do it all right. But you're not actually listening to your inner compass. You don't actually know your core self anymore. And you're not living your own 
most emotionally regulated, evolved, best life. You're living from the shadow. Doctor, heal thyself. Very early on in life, I learned that being high achieving kept me safe, secure, praised, and loved. The more science fairs and spelling bees I won, the more obvious it became. By age 14, demonstrating my smarts got me out of a less than healthy childhood home situation and into college. Being in high achievement mode quite possibly saved my life. Seriously. Here's how that equation looked to my primitive brain. Achievement equals approval slash praise slash air quotes love slash valued equals safety slash survival. Simple, right? And yeah, actually it is. And since the same formula just kept on working for me, being in constant overdrive to achieve and accomplish became my survival default. It became my shadow. For years, it worked out great for me. As long as I kept accomplishing more and more, I was okay. I felt safe. And eventually, accomplishments became connected to money, lack of which was one of the primal triggers from my childhood. So I started saying yes to most everything and taking on more and more and more. Life became all about accomplishment. Even though I had too much on my plate and though I was handling it well on the outside, I started to notice that my work was all too often accompanied by anxiety and pressure. Sometimes I was working so hard that I was staying up too late and losing sleep, skipping a meal, or favoring a project over exercise. This also started to happen along with the age of the internet, so I found it increasingly easy and tempting to begin comparing myself to others, compounding my stress, worry, and perfectionism. I might have just kept going that way, and perhaps it would have all been fine. Most likely, though, I was pretty sure I was going to end up like so many women who come to see me in my practice, developing worsening anxiety, burnout, sleep, or other problems. My fate changed when I met my patient, Marnie. That night, sitting at my dinner table, typing up Marnie's medical recommendations, I had an epiphany. I was doing the same thing that she'd been doing. A quick note on my backstory, if you've not previously heard me share it. I grew up in a New York City housing project, not a gun club, but a pretty serious housing project with its own emerging crack cocaine problems and violence and guns and all the things. I grew up with a single mom and a younger brother, and I left home at 15 to go to college to become a doctor. I had actually gotten into college at 14, which is all well and good. And yes, smart and precocious and fantastic. And I've been called Doogie Hauser, even though this was way before Doogie Hauser was a story. And it's a really interesting story of how I went from a housing project to a home birth midwife and herbalist to a Yale MD. But the interesting part of it is that like Marnie, I had some of the same high stress drive propelling me forward. My inherent abilities with words, science, and reading people became talents I could capitalize on to save my life. I learned very early that being super high achieving, high performing, and learning how to interpret and deliver what people wanted from me to read my audience and to perform as expected and then some was my golden ticket out of my housing project and a highly stressful home. Let's just say I have a very high ACE score, Adverse Childhood Event Score. Now, I didn't know at three or six or 12 years old that my abilities plus skills at using them were going to get me into college really early, nor that they would, in the most beautiful way, launch me on a career that remains deeply satisfying and a life path that's nourishing and fulfilling and well compensated, 
allowing me to do all that I love, explore, write, teach, create, and serve others. All I knew at that time was that if I did the dance and smiled the smile and gave the right answers on tests, in contests, and at family gatherings where I was also quizzed on things, I got rewarded with lavish praise and love. And that back part, or the shadow part of my story, also, like Marnie, kept me on hyperdrive. I felt in my deepest organs and heard in my most frequent thoughts that if I just kept doing this, I will not stay stuck in poverty. I will not stay stuck in a stressful home that her verbal and sometimes even physical abuse. High achievement became my driver. In my 40s, I was saying yes to everything and always worried about saying no, that if I didn't please people, take the opportunity, give yet another talk or give 250% to everything I did, it was all going to fall apart. If I didn't constantly work, the money wasn't going to be there. And I literally had recurring dreams that I was going to be back in that housing project apartment for life. Of note, this is not an uncommon fear. A large percentage of women actually have one of their biggest fears of becoming a bag lady in their old age. In fact, this is known as bag lady syndrome. For me, I was feeding hungry ghosts that were no longer chasing me. After a lot of years in overdrive and actually loving what I was doing. I mean, the main thrust of this is that I was loving what I was doing, but this was kind of always like a little backstory going on for me, a little voice, a little feeling of anxiety accompanying all the joyous, beautiful parts of it and the creative parts of it and being in the power club eventually of medical training, which only amplified my perfectionist tendencies. In fact, my best friend from medical school and I, who is the mother of my godchildren, we still talk about how 17 years later after medical school, we still have the feeling that we should be doing something when we're not doing anything because we're supposed to be relaxing or that if we get a message from someone that says, I need to talk to you, that somehow we're in trouble or the world is caving in, which neither of us were ever in trouble in medical school or residency. It's this environment that probably brings in a higher level of people with this perfectionist tendency, but also really drives it with a lot of internalized behaviors in medical training. I heard an inner voice in the midst of all of this say, baby girl. And at that moment, my wise inner voice was channeling the voice of my dear friend, Taroni Lodog, who calls me baby girl in the most loving, big sisterly fashion. And the voice was saying, give yourself permission to pause too, starting now. As I began digging deeper into this idea of hungry ghosts, I soon learned that in Buddhist philosophy, the term hungry ghosts represents an addiction, an unmet need, an emotional wound that no matter how much we feed it, it's never satisfied. Those words I'd heard long ago in a Tracy Chapman song had a meaning far beyond what I'd realized at the time and far more relevant to my own life than I'd known. My patient's symptoms and life story turned out to be a wake-up call for me. Since then, I've made tremendous shifts in my mindset that have led not only to the satisfying work I'm doing now without so much of the back chatter and backstory, but as importantly to the much more relaxed way I'm living my life. But it wasn't until I'd identified and named my own shadow side and the hungry ghosts I was trying to feed with it that I also began to help my patients find their own for themselves. And it was actually out of this that my book, The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution, a book about burnout for women, was born. Perfection, I discovered in doing my research for that book, is a symptom of allostatic load or 
getting stuck in survival mode, which in my book, I call survival overdrive syndrome or SOS. How appropriate is that? A term I coined to abbreviate allostatic load. Allostasis is the ability to adapt relatively easily to normal amounts of stressors. Allostatic load is, if you can imagine, the straw that breaks the camel's back. When adaptation is so intense to the environment that we become maladaptive, that it becomes too much for the system to bear, or that it actually shifts us in some way in not only our behaviors, but also our physiology. Survival mode is a series of responses that begin in the part of your brain called your amygdala that monitor your inner and outer world for any evidence of danger. And when danger is sensed, sets off a cascade of chemical and neurological reactions, including the production and release of adrenaline and cortisol by your adrenal glands to get you ready for fight or flight to either fight against or flee the danger. Although additional responses have now been identified, one called freeze, think of a deer in the headlights, or fawn, think of people pleasing, that have also been identified as patterns. Somewhere along the trajectory of so many of our lives, usually early on, perfectionists got the message that achievement was connected to safety or security in the form of being loved, accepted, appreciated, seen, heard, maybe not rejected, hit, or abused. Being a good girl, which I'm saying with air quotes here, kept the peace, made things easier in the family, got you praised and loved, and it kept harmony. Perhaps being the healer or the caretaker was a necessary aspect of keeping things functioning in the home. The behaviors that protected you and helped you to feel safe got wired together. And while these behaviors were initially adaptive, they can eventually become maladaptive, causing us more stress than good. They become the hungry ghosts that we think are still chasing us, causing us to behave in ways that no longer serve and in fact, make our lives harder. Perfectionism with a capital P. When I use the word perfectionist, it's with a capital P. As you'll see if you head over to my website, avivaram.com, and search for the blog, Out of Survival Mode, Healing the Shadow Side of Perfectionism, because I always give you a written article, or usually with the accompanying podcast, so you can read along, read later, share it with someone who prefers to read, and also find wonderful links to many of the articles, books, and other things that I talk about references in the podcast. I use the word with a capital P as in the persistent, painful pressure to be perfect. It's the never-ending angsty feeling that you always have to do better, do more, be better, be more, prove yourself, be fitter, smarter, or more successful, or however perfectionism shows up for you that's causing you chronic internal unrest. Perfection, importantly, is not the same as excellence. Don't get me wrong. I have no intention of packing up my ambition or my desire for excellence. They're a natural aspect of who I am. But perfectionism, in fact, is very different. And it keeps us from true excellence because anxiety keeps us from unleashing our inner power. 
our truest, deepest, fiercest, strongest, most fun, juicy, exciting, creative powers into the world. Instead, we play it safe so that we get the approval we're looking for. We take forever to produce things because we're always checking them and feeling like they're never enough. And it doesn't bring us satisfaction. Quite the contrary. We almost never feel satisfied or say to ourselves, job well done, woman, even if the rest of the world is telling us that. Here are some of the symptoms that suggest you may be struggling with perfectionism if they haven't already registered and dropped in from all the things I'm sharing. You're frequently or chronically stressed out or overwhelmed because of a lengthy to-do list. You pretty much always feel you should or could be doing more, even when you're resting and relaxing and watching a Netflix movie with your family, for example. Should, while we're at it, is an oft-repeated word in your vocabulary. You frequently compare yourself to others as in, is she accomplishing more than I am? Or I'm sure she's accomplishing more than I am. Or is she just fundamentally better than I am? I mean, maybe even genetically. You generally feel that you haven't accomplished enough in your life and should be further along at something or everything. You compare and despair, and typically social media makes this worse for you. You have black and white or polarized thinking. You're either successful or you're a failure. And your happiness and inner peace go up and down based on external validation and successes or not successes. You often experience frustration at yourself for not meeting your own standards. You worry a lot or struggle with anxiety. You pretty much always feel you could have done it better. You hold yourself back from something you dream of doing because you're afraid to fail. You have analysis paralysis. Everything has to be perfect before you do it, show it, release it. You're on a perpetual quest for self-improvement, physically, emotionally, spiritually, professionally, financially. You communicate with others based on your accomplishments. You feel you have to present yourself to others as perfect. And, and this is a really important one too, you have unrealistic expectations of others and you get irritable, critical, or easily frustrated when others aren't living up to your standards or expectations. Hungry ghosts the shadow side, and your adrenals. Perfectionism can lead to imbalances in our cortisol production due to us being under so much chronic stress and can ultimately lead to anxiety, overwhelm, and fatigue from taking on too much, not sleeping enough, burnout, digestive problems, blood sugar, insulin, and metabolism problems, hormone imbalances, depression, immune system problems, and even autoimmune diseases. Further, Perfectionism can be a form of addiction, but unlike more obvious harmful addictions, for example, drugs, sex, or gambling, perfectionists get praised for hours. The more perfectionists we are, the more we achieve, the more opportunities, job promotions, money, and recognition we get, this becomes a vicious cycle of achievement, approval, and exhaustion. When we're exposed to stress hormones day in and day out, as happens to most perfectionists over time, there can be havoc in your mind and body. Here are just some of the things that can happen. You gain weight around your middle, belly fat and muffin tops, or you have a hard time maintaining a healthy weight because you're so stressed and you're skipping meals. You have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep. You wake up too early or no matter how much you sleep, you're never fully rested. One of sure sign of it is waking up in the middle of the night or super early in the morning, like three to five in the morning, already with your to-do list churning and that feeling of anxiety that you're never going to do it well enough. You have sugar, carb, or salt cravings, or all of them. You feel run down a lot, overwhelmed, overly reactive and irritable, or burnt out. 
Your hormones are all over the place. You feel anxious, blue, or downright depressed. You have high blood sugar, insulin resistance, or diabetes. You have high blood pressure. Your digestive system is off kilter. You have trouble focusing. Your thinking feels foggy or your memory just isn't what you feel it should be. You may have one of these symptoms or multiple of these symptoms. And many of them, like high blood sugar, insulin resistance, diabetes, and high blood pressure, show up much further down the road after years of living with these symptoms emotionally and physically. Out of survival mode. Your survival default modes aren't a bad thing. They're simply the shadow side of your innate, beautiful, powerful traits. It's just that your naturally high level of inner drive and determination, curiosity, capacity to multitask, sense of responsibility, and your intelligence got co-opted and amplified for a specific purpose, to keep you safe. Being high achieving isn't a bad thing. It's a good quality to have. For example, you want a doctor who doesn't miss details, is willing to work overtime returning calls, and who wants to know everything about their specialty, so studies a lot. But perfectionism, again, is different than excellence. Having big dreams and strong goals, great. But perfectionism has a dark side. So many of us have internalized a seemingly bottomless ocean of negative messages telling us that we're just not good enough, that we work ourselves to the bone, working on ourselves, plagued by a feeling of not being good enough, ever. It's a real fun sucker. Underlying so much of it is this implicit message that we're not enough, that we always have to be working on ourselves, getting better, thinking better, doing more juicing, stretching, journaling, therapy, next educational program that we take on, etc. The awesome news is that due to something called neuroplasticity, which means you can literally change how your brain is physically and chemically wired, you don't have to keep living out that old pattern if it isn't working for you anymore. You can keep the upside of your traits while thanking the downside and kissing them goodbye, just like Marnie did. You get to give yourself permission to turn off the pressure, replenish yourself, relax, and know that you're still safe and loved. And now you get to love yourself too. In doing so, as you're going to learn more about, you can start to reverse the physical symptoms that may have resulted from perfectionism or running the show for far too long. Going from perfectionism to inner peace is a matter of time, healing, mindful awareness, self-compassion, and practice. Rinse and repeat. While I'm still sometimes tempted to pick up the old perfectionist habits, I catch myself more quickly by recognizing the difference in how I feel when I'm in the flow of the creative process following my passion and doing things because I love doing those things beautifully well and deeply versus in an anxious quest for perfectionist achievement. The former is accompanied by a feeling of being in my zone, of being in flow, losing track of time, no self-consciousness, ease, peace. The latter by a feeling of compulsion, tension, wrecking anxiety and pressure, and that there's an inner motor churning. When those feelings rise up, I try to remind myself to take a deep breath and I thank again those old habits that helped me survive and get me out of a tough place at one time in my life. I tell them their services are no longer needed and I reconnect again to how I want to feel. Truly free, at peace in myself, quiet, creative, and joyous. Here are seven simple practices I used and continue to use to heal my own perfectionism and which still continue to help me to live my life with more ease and enjoyment. The first thing I want you to do is just to notice. Pay attention and catch yourself if you find yourself comparing and despairing. If you find yourself 
giving yourself a hard time, if you find yourself saying yes when you really want to say no, or falling into any of the other signs of perfectionism I mentioned above, or if you relate to other patterns like finding yourself a people pleaser, finding yourself in martyr mode or good girl, simply stop in the moment, own and acknowledge your pattern, notice what's going on, what's the trigger, who are you with, what's the situation. Where in your body are the sensations associated with this feeling? For example, when I'm out of alignment, I notice that I feel tight in my chest and in my throat. So I breathe into that place. Then I drop my breath deeper into my belly as part of shifting out of that old behavior. Importantly, notice feelings of overwhelm, anxiety, and distress, and take these as signs that you've crossed over from healthy stress and hard work into survival overdrive syndrome. And note that being in survival overdrive can trigger these patterns. Engaging in these patterns keeps you in survival overdrive. So it's a really important pattern to notice. The next is, as I shared with Marnie and gave myself permission to do, is to give yourself permission to pause. High-performance athletes, musicians, and really successful business people know this and make time for recharging and rejuvenating, getting massages, hitting the spa, getting outdoors to unwind, clearing their heads, or as Kevin Cosner said in For the Love of the Game, clearing the mechanism and decompressing. So why do women, and especially moms, find it so hard to take time for ourselves, to actually give ourselves permission to pause? Why are we riddled with guilt? Because somewhere along the line, we got the idea that it's self-indulgent to practice self-care, We've convinced ourselves as part of perfectionism or good girlness or martyrdom that we don't have enough time. But self-care is health care. I promise you, if you do these things, your world won't come tumbling down. And actually, if you give yourself more permission to be at peace, to be comfortable inside yourself and not dogging yourself so much, you're actually going to find that your creative powers and your inspiration and your motivation and your energy and your focus actually get replenished if they're already low and become amplified. The next is to pay attention to something called automatic negative thoughts. Happens to be the acronym ANTS. I call them ANTS in your brain. ANTS in your brain are like that old song, you're no good, you're no good, baby, you're no good, I'm going to say it again, playing over and over in your head. She is the relentless inner critic. The first thing to do again is notice. But this time you're noticing any background thoughts, loud or subtle that just sort of seem to propagate in your brain space on their own. You don't have to do anything else, just see them. Then remind yourself, they're just thoughts, fleeting words. They're echoes of default messages you picked up along the journey of your life, but they're not your truths. Then imagine your best friend said that she was having that thought. She said, I'm never good enough. I never achieve anything. Um, I'm not beautiful. I'm a failure. I'm never doing enough. What loving thoughts would you say to her? What would your best friend say to you if you shared those kind of thoughts with her? And if you need some help, my guess is she say something like this to you. You're beautiful. You're a badass powerhouse. You're a woman with a big heart, wise mind, and luminous spirit. And another reframe if you're a perfectionist, say to yourself, I am perfect just as I am. I am enough, more than enough. Remember, perfect is the enemy of the good. 
If you spend so much time waiting for things to be perfect, it'll never happen. It's impossible. Use these healing words like, I am perfect just as I am. I am enough. Tell yourself in the mirror if you have to that you're beautiful, that you're a badass powerhouse. And as you use these words as a healing mantra, whenever those thoughts automatically come up, combine those with some gentle breathing for 30 seconds. The thoughts will pass. They'll return less often. And ultimately, they'll be replaced more quickly with your loving words. Does it happen overnight? It can. It's more often, though, a lifelong practice of noticing and reframing. But it really does work. Another thing, particularly if you're a perfectionist, is to quit comparing. When you compare, you're defining your own self-worth in relationship to someone else rather than honoring your own beautiful uniqueness. Comparing can lead you to feel isolated. You're just not good enough to belong, exhausted because you're trying to keep up or win, and judgmental, which is not usually a good feeling. As a perfectionist in recovery, I'm quite familiar with comparing. And as I said earlier, social media has only made it worse. I've conquered my habit in a strange way through the act of what's sometimes called loving kindness meditation. Each time I found myself comparing myself to someone else in the early days of social media, invariably someone in my professional field who I felt like was running circles around me, as I would say to my husband, I'd go to their website or social media page and drop a like. By giving a shout out, I was reminding myself that there's room for all of us and honoring rather than diminishing that person. In retrospect, I was also doing a good deed, which our brains reward by dialing down the stress response. So it was a win-win because the other person saw that I was over there liking something they did too. And that creates sisterhood and camaraderie, which is also healing for our stress response system. Interestingly, over the years, I've learned that really is room for all of us and we're all needed. So comparing just wastes your precious time from bringing your gifts to the world while you're distracted by someone else's. When I was in my 20s, my very early 20s, one of my late mentors um, in midwifery said, Aviva, you've got to stop shooting on yourself. S-H-O-U-L-D-I-N-G. Shooting on yourself sounds like this. I should be thinner. I should be more successful. I should be married with two kids by now. I should be in better shape. I should be healthier. I should own my own house. I should have more money in the bank. I should have a better job. The I should list goes on and on and on. She said, honey, take should right out of your vocabulary. You'll have a much happier life. Only then did I begin to notice how often I shoulded on myself. Taking out the should is a tough exercise, especially if you say it as often as I did. But how we talk to ourselves really does influence our neurobiology, how we feel, and our life experience. So if you want to get out of the should pressure cooker, here's what sounds like a simple exercise and something I highly recommend committing to for three weeks. Take the word should completely out of your vocabulary. You'll see what I mean. And consider maybe even keeping a journal of your practice. Practice radical self-love. You're not a continual self-improvement project. The self-health movement always seems to be pushing us to be more spiritual, healthier, cleaner, better, thinner. And adding to the problem for so many women, not only is it an exhausting quest for self-improvement, it's harmful. It keeps us in overdrive and overwhelm. It keeps us dissatisfied with our fundamental selves and who we are. We feel we're never able to do enough, do it all, or take downtime. 
Yet we say yes to doing more. We exercise harder, stay up late to get more done, all in compensation for feeling we're not enough just with who we are and where we are and what we're doing now. I would like to propose that we are all good enough, that we are all amazing, fantastic expressions of beauty, creativity, kindness, and good intention, that this, rather than a self-deficit mindset, is the starting place from which to launch your dreams and your visions and your desires to grow, to make those even more sublime. Here it is. With a deep inhalation to the count of six, say to yourself, I am beautiful. And on the exhalation to the count of six, say, as I am. Repeat that three more times. That's it. 48 seconds. When you stop listening or hit pause, I am beautiful as I am. Inhale, exhale as you're saying it. Then, rather than a battle with a self that needs to be thinner, healthier, more successful, or whatever it is that plagues you about not being good enough, make those healthy choices that you want to make. Do those things that you want to do from a place of self-love so that it becomes the art of enjoyment. Your green juice becomes a celebration of your desire to be healthy and delight your body with high-quality food information for yourselves, not a battle with your cravings or your weight. Your yoga becomes a celebration of moving your body, not a battle with your belly fat. Your visualization becomes a joyous act of creative self-expression, not a mind game to get yourself out of a stuck situation. Radical self-love starts with self-acceptance and self-compassion. Some of my favorite authors on these topics are Kristen Neff, Brené Brown, and Tara Brach. All good reads or listens if you want to go deeper with links that you can find over at my website. Count your wins. Most of us, and perhaps especially so perfectionists, tend to think of all the things we didn't get done rather than giving ourselves credit for the things we have, small or big. In fact, we tend to spend a lot of time in seeing the accomplishment glass half full. To shift that, make it a practice each evening before you go to bed to recount at least one thing that you did that day that made you feel good about yourself. We all deserve praise, and who better to get it from than your own best friend, you. Plus, optimism and gratitude release hormones that counteract the stress response and rewire your brain so you don't get stuck in survival mode. And weirdly, there's scientific evidence that optimism can help you attract more success into your life through a neurobiological mechanism called positivity bias. So experimenting with some new rose-tinted lenses on yourself might not be so bad to try. These days, I'm really proud of myself. After that appointment with Marnie, I realized my inner wise woman was there all along, quietly whispering to me that it's safe to relax. I was just too busy pushing to hear her. I practiced letting myself stop pushing so hard and I stopped beating myself up for not being perfect. I stopped wanting to be perfect. I realized that I could live a whole new way, enjoying my creative process, which yes, is sometimes hard and requires a lot of work, but without cracking a constant inner whip on myself. I've learned to have more compassion for myself and understand the reasons that I became a perfectionist, honoring my powerful, wild, deep survival instinct that got me here today. Yes, some days I forget and I spiral out. Sometimes I still am tempted to take on that one more thing and I try to catch myself. Most importantly, I welcome and embrace a softer, decidedly more feminine approach to my life, along with my love of learning, 
writing, creating, and sometimes even being so far in the zone that I occasionally do stay up late or skip a meal because I'm just so in it. This is all me and who I am. I've learned to see the universe as a safe and friendly place, and I've learned to let myself rest when I need to. I hope you will too. You deserve it. I also appreciate getting to share this with you because we teach what we need to continue to learn. So thank you. You are worthy. I invite you to join me today by accepting and loving yourself exactly how, where, and who you are right this second, starting from saying, yes, I'm amazing and doing it from a place full of self-love. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time. <laughs>